Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Adam Butler and Michael Philbrick from Resolve Asset Management Global. Our super special guests today are David Blanchett and Michael Fink. David is the Head of Retirement Research at Peachim, an asset management unit of Prudential. And Michael is a Professor of Wealth Management at the American College of Financial Services. Today, we're going to be talking about new approaches to optimizing retirement. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. David, Michael, welcome to the show. It's really exciting to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Michael, as well, right? (laughs) Yeah, you know, reluctantly, but yes, happy to be here. (laughs) Well, guys, thank you. So, gentlemen, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say thanks for joining us. You guys are an absolute fountain of knowledge in an area that I think is largely undercommunicated to some degree, miscommunicated in in, uh, the financial services business. And I'm, I'm looking forward to peeling back the onion with you guys today. Yeah, I have to add, there's a real, there's a real dearth of, of what you have to offer in terms of knowledge out there. And, uh, there's a real proliferation of nonstop optimism. So let's get, let's get to it. Well, you know what happens when you peel the onion, right? (laughs) There's always tears. (laughs) (laughs) So let them flow. um, David, Michael, to kick things off, please, please give us the rundown, the stories of your respective careers, a little bit about where you are now and what you're working on. David, you have a far more interesting career. Why don't you go first? I don't know about that. I mean, so, uh, these days I'm the, uh, head of retirement research for, um, PGM DC solutions, the new unit within PGM. Uh, focused on the DC space. Um, those of you that know who PGM is, it's the uh, investment management group uh, for Prudential. Um, I, I just left Morningstar. I was there for about 10 years doing the same thing. Um, as I go further back, I used to be a financial advisor. Um, different stuff. I've always been uh, fascinated by the field of financial planning and helping people accomplish financial goals. So, Michael? Yeah, I uh, started out as the head of the PhD program at the biggest financial planning program in the United States. That was Texas Tech back in 2006. And I'm trained as an economist, so I understand the value of annuitization as part of retirement income planning. I teach it in the PhD classes. Uh, and, And part of the challenge of being in this field is explaining to financial advisors, many of whom are resistant to the idea of using guaranteed income, uh, that this actually is an option that we have understood in the field of economics for a long time, that, uh, annuitization is, is a way of getting rid of a very important risk in retirement. That's the risk of not knowing how long you're going to live. That's an idiosyncratic risk. And the, the foundations of finance say that if you have an idiosyncratic risk, you should try to get rid of it. You should try to pool it with others. Um, and a part of what David and I, and also our co-author Wade Fow have done over the last decade is talk about, first of all, how some of the assumptions that financial planners use can be overly optimistic. For example, very at the very basic level, asset returns, returns on bonds. We know returns on bonds are not going to be as high as they've been historically. So we can't really use historical returns to be able to identify what is a safe practice for creating income in retirement. 
part of what we're trying to do is, is show that annuitization can be a more attractive way for retirees to actually spend their money, especially the money that they've got invested in safe types of assets like bonds. Uh, so we have been working on this for over for about the last decade, different permutations of the use of guaranteed income when it makes sense and when it doesn't. Um, we feel pretty comfortable that financial advisors in general don't use it enough. Michael just goes straight to annuities. It's like his go-to out of the bat. For it is. Yeah. <laughs> and why do you, why you, do you, you think that is? Like, <laughs> I mean, is it, just the, there. is it the cynical view that um, either they're not educated enough or they just don't pay enough commission? Well, <laughs> you know, in, in the United States, we have very different camps of financial advisors. We have those who are paid by commission and those who are paid by assets. And those who are paid by assets don't have a very strong incentive to encourage their client to annuitize a portion of their savings, because essentially that's giving away part of their income. Um, and on the other hand, you have those who are incentivized by commissions, and sometimes they sell products that pay a higher commission, even if they're not necessarily the best products for the client. And that's created a negative reputation, I think, of the sales practices and even of the product. It's really tarnished the image of the product. Uh, so we... We really are focused on how to use these products efficiently and what types of products make the most sense. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of reasons why annuities, and I think a lot of advisors simply dismiss annuities offhand because of perhaps some of that negative reputation and the historical sales practices. Uh, it gives them license to feel like they're, they, they can comfortably dismiss these products when the reality is that it's just a tool in the toolbox and they have to consider using the tool when there is an appropriate job for it. Yeah. I think, I think that's my biggest beef that Michael just touched on is the fact that too many advisors just don't even consider them. Right. I, I, I totally get that, you know, again, in the U S delaying social security is like the best place to go to for guaranteed income. But, you know, I, I just view them as, as, as one, one of many, you know, clubs you can use when you're playing a game of golf and the more clubs you have, the better you're going to play. And I just, I just feel like, you know, I, I, I like to poke the bear every now and then on LinkedIn, you have someone kind of you know, say negative stuff about things and you, you know, and, and the arguments, I just, I just don't hear compelling arguments why they shouldn't be used. I hear people talk about, about fees and about bad products. And my response is like, you have specific human capital. You are trained to help your clients accomplish your, uh, their financial goals. You, you can sort through thousands of mutual funds and ETFs and pick six for a portfolio. You mean to tell me you can't, you know, sift through all of the different, you know, policies out there and pick one that might work for some of your clients? To me, it, it just suggests that they're not really trying. Well, and it, I think it's important, too, to recognize that the Canadian landscape for annuities is quite a bit different than the American landscape, right? So this, this um, podcast is primarily directed at Canadian investors and advisors. Um, so a lot of the more like the, the, um, different types of deferred and variable annuities that you could get in the U S are just not typically available in Canada for average investors. So there's a bit of a, a more limited offering on that side. Interestingly, just in the last year, some new products have come to market to help try to fill the gap specifically the there's a there's a purpose vehicle right. that was launched this year yeah. um modeled somewhat after a variable annuity and has some of the other characteristics about a tontine maybe it's a little earlier the conversation for this but since we are sort of we did start with annuities um 
maybe for the benefit of our Canadian audience, maybe can one of you talk about what you understand about this new product and, and some of its uh, positive and negative features? Yeah, I mean, I can have a yeah. quick go at it. I mean, if you think about an annuity, historically, there's been, you know, a government or more recently like an insurance company behind it. I mean, this is effectively purely an investment vehicle where the investment and mortality experience is shared among, you know, the shareholders, whatever word you want to use to describe those that own into this product. And so it's a very, it's not necessarily a new way to do risk transfer. It's been, it's been around for hundreds of years, but you know, what's interesting is that we don't really have a, a tontine-esque approach available in the U.S. And so I think that, you know, it really is an exciting innovation in terms of product availability for Canadians looking for something that can give them a way to kind of protect their lifetime income, but in a different way than you would with an annuity. Now, there are, you know, pros and cons we can talk about, but, you know, I, I, I tip my hat to Canada for um, being, a, you know, a leader in that space. Well, there's two primary sources of risk for retirees. There's probably, I'm sure there's more than two, but um, certainly there's market risk and there's longevity risk. Right. And so maybe talk about how traditional annuities address both of those risks and maybe contrast that against how this new purpose vehicle um, approaches it. Michael? Well, I'll... I'll start with longevity risk and I'll try to make it as simple as possible. So. Ooh, is this the cake metaphor? You gotta use the cake metaphor. So. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's so important to understand, but why is this important? What happens in the absence of being able to share that longevity risk with other participants in a pool? So we have say a hundred retirees and. All of the retirees uh, have their own accounts and they try to spend down their accounts every year to provide a lifestyle for themselves in retirement. The problem is that they don't know if retirement is going to last 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. So what do you do? Do you assume that retirement is going to last as long as your expected longevity? Well, that means that if you spend according to your expected longevity, 50% of the chance, 50% of the time, you're going to run out of money because you're going to outlive your expected longevity. Now you can choose a percentage failure rate. So you can choose a age that you want to spread your assets across that is equivalent to the 25th percentile of longevity. So let's say you're a healthy 65 year old woman. The 25th percentile is somewhere around the age of 95. So you take your investments and you spread them to the age of 95. Well, there's still a 25%. So let's just, let's just make sure everyone understands. So, so in this context, 25th percentile means you have a 25% chance of living past this, this age. That's right. That's correct. I, I, yeah. It probably makes more sense if I say the 75th percentile. So 25% yeah, yeah, yeah. chance of failure then you spread your assets to the age of 95. So maybe you couldn't only accept, say, a 9% chance of failure, in which case you spread your assets to the age of 100. Well, this creates a problem because, first of all, it exposes you to the possibility that you're going to run out if you live beyond the age of 100. Nine out of 100 women who are healthy at the age of 65 are going to live beyond the age of 100. So they will, they will be unhappy because they have run out of money the other 90% of women could have spent more. 
half of them are going to die sometime before the median longevity. They could have spent more every year, but instead they were scrimping so that they, the money could last to the age of 100. So what would happen if we all got together and created a long life income club where everybody pools their money together and then we can all spend as if we're going to live as long as the average person in the pool. And some of them are going to die before the average longevity, but they spend more every single year that they were alive. So even if they only lived 10 years, they lived better during those 10 years because they spent more each year. And they also knew they were never going to run out so they could comfortably spend that money. They didn't have to have worry hanging over their head that if they went on vacation, like they might be jeopardizing their ability to, to live when they're in their 90s. So we could all get rid of that longevity risk by creating a club. Uh, we pool our money together. What eventually is going to happen is that those who die early are going to subsidize those who live a long time. But those who died early, you know, they're dead. So they don't care. They, they, they are subsidizing someone else, but it doesn't matter to them because every year that they were alive, they lived better. So that's the basic intuition behind the value of annuitization is that by pooling our assets together as a group, we can all collectively live better and spend more and not live with the fear that we could potentially run out. Now, if we don't annuitize and then we back out optimal spending, what we see is that optimally we will spend less each year because we are all risk averse. And because we're risk averse, we fear that possibility that we could be in a situation where we outlive our savings and we have to spend significantly less later on in retirement. So that's the longevity risk. And that's why it's efficient to pool that together with other retirees. You can actually live better with less risk. David, you want to talk about asset return risk? Yeah, I mean, asset return risk is that if when you retire and your assets go down, you have less money to fund your retirement with. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's simply that, that, you know, bad markets, especially when you first retire, have a pronounced negative effect on the ability of that portfolio to generate income for longer time periods. I mean, you know, we, we you can run all these scenarios and you can have the exact same geometric return or arithmetic return, but what matters if you get that negative 40%, that happens in year 30, you're gonna be fine, but if it happens in year one or two, it can be disastrous. And so that's this risk that is, you know, very difficult, so much longevity risk that, that you just have based upon how you invest and what you purchase in terms of funding your retirement. Yeah, so that's a really important point, right? Because market risk is is kind of a combination of two different types of risk. One is the risk that the drift term, in other words, your actual realized compound return is lower than expectations. But the other side of that is that the sequence of those returns is, um, is disastrous to your uh, spending plan because you have ex an extremely bad period of returns early on when the size of your nest egg is very large, right? Um, so the order in which those returns arrive actually has a really meaningful impact on the sustainability of your nest egg, right? So really it's, it's kind of three distinct sources of, of risk. And um, this purpose product is designed really to pool longevity risk so that everybody can plan they're spending based on an expectation of living to their actual expected, um, you know, average mortality. So 
for a, let's say for a healthy 65 year old woman, what is that? 87, 90, um, instead of having everybody have to plan for their, you know, 90th percentile or 95th percentile, um, longevity, which may be, as you say, sort of, um, upwards of a hundred years. Right. So everybody by sharing this longevity risk, everybody gets to have more certainty in their planning and has an opportunity to, to spend more in retirement and live a more, uh, robust lifestyle. Um, did I, did I get all that right? You did. I mean, like, so one thing there is certainty, but there's also uncertainty, right? So, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways you can create, you know, this is maybe a bit of a nuance, but guaranteed or protected lifetime income, right? So it's an interesting component of a tontine. Um, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Don't let, don't let my comments go otherwise, but you know, it, what it, what it, what it kind of hinges on is that, is that you get the estimates of that tail risk correct, right? So if people collectively start living a few years longer than average, that can have really big implications for those who are actually alive at age, you know, 100, 105, where they could, they could see these large unexpected changes in income based upon, you know, how you, you know, how you cohort out the different groups and everything else. Um, so, I mean, I think that, I think that to me, it just exists on a spectrum, right? If you kind of think about like the most basic product, you've got like these immediate annuities where you have this irrevocable transfer of wealth and you get income for life and it's that easy. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got, you've got tontines where you've got this kind of, you know, collective investment and mortality risk. And then I think that in reality, for most folks, they should use both either some combination of the two or other products that do combinations of those attributes based upon what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. yeah so I, mean, I guess you can, if you were to combine a tontine with a longevity swap, yeah. then now you're finally able to hedge the longevity risk completely. But, but the tontine itself is vulnerable to just a general upward shift in average lifespan um, over the term of the, of the tontine. Yeah, so that's point. actually where we are in America right now. So America, we have products that do allow for that kind of, uh, you know, investment experience will affect your results, but not really where there's, where the, uh, where there's that sharing of the mortality experience. And, I, and, and, there, and there's pros and cons to each. I mean, if you can, I mean, if you can, if you can cut out the insurance company, in theory, you can have higher payouts. But it does create more uncertainty at the tail end where, you know, if there is that breakthrough in, in, in cancer and all of a sudden people start living longer, it could be disastrous for the 10 that are left as part of that pool. Right. Well, I mean, the, the insurance that, companies are short that risk, right? So it's possible right. in the end that the insurance industry itself is unable to meet those, those guarantees. In the but they end. have other pro so like if you look if you look at if you look at the purpose structure that they use cohorts right where they've got I forget if it's three or five year groups where it's not you know because you you do worry about intergenerational transfers to some extent right so like you know you don't want to necessarily you know, so you know public pensions that's going to happen because you're 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 pulling resources across 50, 75 years if you have mm -hmm. a more a more segmented approach certain cohorts could be a lot more effective than others and so you know a benefit or a problem with insurance companies is that it's all one giant pool so it's true. They would be negatively affected, but it wouldn't be as much as, you know, if you have just a group of, you know, like of the 90 to 95 year olds and there is that, you know, is that change, then that group would be affected a lot more than the more kind of like generalized pooled structure. Gotcha. Sorry, Michael, I cut you off twice. Did you have something you wanted to add? 
Well, I mean, it's first of all, with an insurance company, oftentimes they have a significant amount of life insurance on the book. So a big shift in longevity is actually going to be good for them for that part of the book that is associated with their life insurance business. Great point. That's going to make it easier mm. for them to withstand a potential <clears throat> improvement in longevity. Whereas if you hadn't uh, transferred that risk to an institution, such as an insurance company through a Tontine, you could buy a longevity swap, but you are, you know, there is some benefit that transferring that risk, that pooled longevity risk to an institution can provide relative to a Tontine. Yep. Now that makes sense. And I guess like, I mean, I mean, I, I agree completely with the, with the, with the, with the hedging component of, of like life insurance and annuities, but the, the actual hedge varies a lot based upon each insurance company. So, I mean, those, those that, you know, for example, have more whole life insurance are going to be a better hedge than those that focus just on term, but, but that, that is a structural hedge that does exist within insurers versus say a team, which is just kind of focused on that, that longevity piece. Got it. So. Maybe let's turn to a discussion of market risk, because I think this is a source of risk that is maybe profoundly underappreciated at this point in the cycle. Um, so maybe Michael, I don't know if you want to, you want to kick off, but maybe give us your capital market expectations or, or where, where you think people should begin to start thinking about planning in terms of expected returns for traditional uh, portfolios going forward from this point. Well, Adam, I think you and I agree that everything is expensive right now. So all financial assets, generally speaking, are historically expensive relative to their average uh, as a multiple of the profitability of the company. And that historically, when they've been expensive, the returns on those assets have been lower than they have been historically. So I think it's a big danger to use historical data that includes returns from periods where stocks and bonds were cheaper than they are right now. When we look at those periods that stocks and bonds are as expensive as they are right now, what we see is that we cannot hold the same return expectation. So probably as we, we know what bond returns are going to be within a relatively tight range based on yields today. Um, we, we don't know what stock returns are going to be, but, um, they're a lot more expensive than the historical average. In the United States, they're, they're more than twice as expensive as the historical average. And in periods where they've been that expensive, um, and in fact, you can actually create a model that would lead you to believe that the expect expectation of 10-year returns is probably closer to about 2 or 3% on average. Now, that's on average, Nominal. which means that you have yeah. this whole nor normal distribution with maybe 2% in the <laughs> middle. And then all these tails going off in the right and left-hand side. So maybe returns could be 15%, but maybe they could be negative 15, or maybe they could be negative 20%. And the problem, especially for near retirees, is let's say you have a five-year time horizon and you've got this investment portfolio, which is a normal distribution, and you're going to be investing in it over a five-year time horizon, and then you're going to retire. Now, there is going to be a relatively wide distribution of incomes that you could draw from that portfolio five years in the future. And if you look at a normal distribution, what you see is that, you know, you on average, you might be able to generate $25,000 of income, but at the first percentile, maybe it's $10,000 of income. And at the 99th percentile, maybe it's $60,000 of income. You're going to be somewhere in between there. You're probably going to be close to the middle, but you don't know in advance. And I think that makes it very difficult to plan for a lifestyle in the future, especially if you're investing in highly risky 
assets. So a lot of people right now look at yields on bonds and they say, whoa, those are too low. The only option I have is to go heavy into investment risk. But when you go heavy into investment risk, you have to accept that that distribution of outcomes, which means the distribution of your lifestyle in retirement is going to be broader. Uh, and can you, can you handle that? I mean, if you look at the left tail and you look at how, what your lifestyle could look like on the worst part of the distribution, can you live with that? And then you have to ask yourself, if you can't, is it worth taking all that risk? And the only reason you take the risk is so that you can get the best case scenarios. Would you trade some of the best case scenarios for some of the worst case scenarios? If you would, then it might be worth thinking about how to constrain that distribution somehow, either by taking less investment risk or through the use of products that incorporate financial options. Is there a case for nominal bond exposure in the portfolio instead of like, how should people think about a nominal bond ladder in the portfolio versus a simple annuity in the portfolio? Like, are those, are those generally substitutable, do you think? And then if so, you know, how should they think about the relative merits? So I would say <clears throat> kind of, right? I think there's a, there's an, a problem with how we think about risk as it applies to goals, right? So, you know, if I ask people like, what is a safe asset, a safe, a really safe asset, you would say, well, cash, cash is a safe asset, right? Because cash, T-bills, the odds of you not getting your money back in 90 days are like zero, right? Well, I mean, how safe is cash to own for 30 years if you're trying to fund a retirement goal? It's not very safe, right? You know, I can tell you with a high level of certainty, if you own cash and it, it stays at today's yields, you're not going to have income last more than 20 or 25 years at a decent withdrawal amount, right? And so there's this question of, well, you know, what does it mean to be safe? When, and, you know, so nominal bonds are kind of, they're somewhere in between. Right. You know, obviously, uh, you know, if you have a 10 year government bond, it's not, you know, it's not as safe as cash and there's more volatility there if you're market to market, but it will do a better job of funding income and retirement. Right. Annuities, though, are are different in that they're they're cash like in the volatility of the income. It's guaranteed, but it also then hedges away that longevity risk. And so I think that the perspective we take on on risk depends on what we're trying to do. And I think that nominal bonds, you know, had definitely have a place in the portfolio, but I mean, as kind of Michael's alluded to already, you know, annuities become, or just guaranteed income in some capacity becomes more and more efficient where you're looking at, at to use it to kind of, you know, minimize risk when it comes to funding that retirement income. Yeah, I think you think, have to think in terms of every asset having a goal. And the first step in the retirement planning process is what are your goals? So the basic fundamental goals are how much do you want to pass on? Um, how, what is your, what is your legacy goal? What is your income goal? And, and along with what your income goal is, how much variability are you willing to accept in terms of your lifestyle and investment risk means variability in your lifestyle, but also accepting longevity risk means variability potentially in your lifestyle rather than transferring that risk to an institution. So, um, you know, when you're saying bonds, like what role does a bond have in a retirement portfolio? If you have no legacy goal, then an economist would say, other than the need for emergency liquidity, 
there's no need to have bonds in a portfolio because you can always generate more income per dollar through annuitization than you can through bonds. So why hold them? There is an opportunity cost. Now, the opportunity cost might be worth it if you want to maintain a certain amount of liquidity for emergency needs. But if you don't, or if you can tap some sort of a source for liquidity, like for example, home equity, then it really doesn't make sense. You will lose every year by creating a bond ladder versus annuitizing. Well, I think, I think the legacy issue is a big issue though. And probably one of the largest challenges that I think individuals face and maybe ad advisors, uh, don't discourage enough or don't educate enough around, right? The fact that, oh, if you put, this is not a zero or one conversation, obviously, right? So in the, in the context of, um, you have no legacy, uh, thought great. Right. So maximum, annu maximum annuity, get the income in away you go. You may change your mind. Um, but it's that fear, I think that drives a lot of the decision-making around, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, I think I'm going to die tomorrow. So, but I mean, and, I, and so I think that we, the people have the wrong perspective there. So I think what you should focus on is, 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 is some kind of like minimum threshold. So I always make the point that, you know, let's say that you're, you're making a decision to buy an annuity and you're worried about, I'm going to die when I'm 70 years old. Mm. Okay. You know, here's the kicker there. If you die when you're 70, your kids get all the money that you save for retirement. Congratulations. <laughs> like, you know, they are going to be in great shape. And so it's true. You could have given them a little bit more money that they probably don't need at age 70, but that's not why you saved it. You didn't save all your money up to retire to give to your kids. Maybe you did. People do that, I guess. Sure. But I think the problem is, is that, is that even with that perspective, the risk there is actually not at some kind of like minimum bequest legacy amount at age 75. It's what happens if you live to like age 100 and not only mm -hmm. have you used up all your assets, but you're using your kids' assets up as well. And so I think from my perspective, there is obviously time preference here, but I think that for me, it's, it's education. I think that, that when people talk about bequests and legacy, we need to reframe that and say, Hey, you know, if I happen to pass away at 75, I mean, that would be sad, but like, you're going to be in really good shape. You don't have to worry about supporting me. If I live a long time though, I could deplete all the money that I have and you could depend upon me. And so I think that, I think what we need is, is, is a reframing of that where the, cause the, the truly bad outcome in terms of like wealth effects on, on children is if you do exhaust your resources and spend theirs versus giving them not as much as you could have had you not bought the annuity. So I, I think I, I, I totally get the perspective. I think it's the wrong way to frame the argument because you're not looking at that kind of true bad outcome for the kids in the grand scheme of things. Right. So it's an underweighting in the individual's mind of the, the, the first circumstance and your reframing, right. which I think is brilliant in understanding you're probably going to live longer than you think. And I think most people would have been surprised by, you know, the average 65 year old woman having a fairly significant chance of reaching 75 and a hundred. Uh, I think in a lot of, a lot of the viewers will, that, that doesn't sort of grasp it, it's a, it's a tomorrow problem, not a today problem. Uh, sort of thing. So we're well, dealing with that behavioral issue yeah, as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think again, it's the, the key that like, I want, you know, it's, it's, it's the relative, you know, utility, if you want mm -hmm. to quantify it for yep. each, like, you know, like it, you're, you're going to be, your, your kids are going to be just fine. If you, if you pass away early retirement, like they get all your stuff, you're, they're, they're cool. It's, it's that, I mean, maybe it's time preference. I don't know what it is, but yeah. we focus too much on 
oh, you know, like they wouldn't get as much as they could today versus what happens if, you know, things don't go according, you know, if I do live a long time later, I think, I think that is the education that is just lacking within in terms of, I mean, like, like online calculators we have for, for these issues don't really, don't really weigh that or think about that. I think they can lead people to making bad decisions. I mean, we start, we start our, we kind of start our, our families thinking that way, right? I mean, when we start young and we have children, we think, you know, how can we protect our families? How can we save up enough money? So what if something happens to me? We buy insurance, we do all these other things when we're younger, but as we get to retirement, we, we're still, you know, we still have this consciousness because our children are still our children, even though they're not children anymore. And we're, we're still thinking, they're still, they're still part of us that's still thinking, you know, I want to leave something for them just in case something happens to me or if, you know, I, if I pass away. But it's kind of, you know, like when you look at the situation right now, it's kind of dreary when you consider that yields are, you know, the 10 years, one and a half, maybe a little bit more. And the, uh, you know, you're looking at an average of 2% and you consider, you know, what a million dollars is anymore. It's, it's not what it used to be. You know, it used to be something if you had a million dollars uh, in savings, uh, you know, liquid that you could collect an income from, you know, of six, seven, eight percent, right? That, you know, those days are gone. Now you need four times, you know, two or three times the nest egg that you did just maybe, you know, five or 10 years ago. Uh, thanks to, you know, thanks to our, our economic situation, thanks to the Fed and uh, interest rates being cut to zero. So like, you know, if investors are looking at bonds and, and bonds and, you know, in terms of, you know, providing some kind of a retirement backstop of, of, of 20,000 per million or $25,000 per million, um, you know, that doesn't say much for the kind of lifestyle they could have. They're going to be more than likely, uh, if, I mean, I don't know, you know, forgive me, but I don't know what the, uh, the payouts are on annuities right now, but. You know, if, if, if you, if a million dollars is paying out $25,000 and your lifestyle is beyond that, you're going to be dipping into your, you're going to be dipping into your capital, uh, to make up for it. And then you have the long, you know, we're back, we're right back to where we started this discussion, which is, well, it, it, you know, running out of money before it's a your good time too. maybe, uh, talk about the, the impact of the zero risk or of the fluctuations of the income on the financial plan as a meaningful sort of input to, um, dampening the risk that you have of that income variability that I think, uh, Michael was talking about. So you take the annuity and with a portion of the investments, I think is what you're saying, David, it's not a zero or one. So you're going to do some sort of, uh, scale and, and as you scale up that income, that is virtual, it is guaranteed. It is going to come in like clockwork. Um, how does that how does that change the financial plan? Like how much should we be thinking? Should investors be thinking and advisors be thinking? Where's the tipping point where you start to see meaningful difference in the, in the overall balance in the financial plan? Well, I think first of all, what is again, the preference for income variability of the client. So mm -hmm. when you take investment risk, you take investment risk because you hope to achieve some kind of a risk premium. You, you hope to get a better return than you do from bonds. And as Pierre says, you know, interest rates are very low, but that doesn't necessarily mean that stock returns are going to be that much higher. 
you, you take the risk because you hope that they'll be higher, but they may not be, they may be lower, in which case you're going to have to cut down your spending. And then your asset allocation really is a function of how much variability you're willing to accept. Now, the, the way to get rid of variability with safe investments is to pool longevity risk. But when you invest, when you take market risk, there really is no way to get rid of that variability. It translates directly into the sustainability of your investment portfolio. I want to also address another issue that I know David and I see a lot in the research, which is a lot of people have this corpus mentality where they, you know, they save their entire life for retirement. They may not even have a very strong bequest motive, but they don't want to see their nest egg get smaller. There's a psychological barrier to seeing their wealth fall in retirement. But that's not rational. That's, that's, that's a psychological problem because what, that's, that, what that means is that they're fixated on that nest egg value as a reference point. And it makes them unhappy to see a value that's lower than their reference point. But then you have to ask yourself, why did you save the money in the first place? What was the purpose of not spending as much when you were younger so that you could build the nest egg if you get to retirement and you don't feel like you can spend out of the nest egg? That's, that's a problem. That's actually something that I think we need to surmount. And I think that actually some financial advisors don't encourage people enough to become more comfortable with seeing their nest egg value get smaller. And in a low asset return environment, the only way that you're going to be able to maintain the lifestyle that you had before retirement is to get comfortable seeing that nest egg get smaller. In order to get comfortable with that, you also have to acknowledge your own mortality, that, the, that you're not going to last forever in retirement, that it's okay if you spend the money down, if, especially if you have, say, plans, set aside some money for your heirs or you have a life insurance policy, you're goal with the rest of your money is lifestyle. But what happens when you don't feel comfortable spending it? And we see this over and over again in the data that people are not comfortable spending down their savings, but they need to get more comfortable. Now they're not comfortable because of so many uncertainties. And that fear is what drives people to not spend as much as they could. And again, annuitization requires that you have a smaller nest egg. So you might start out with a million dollars and you might put you know, $300,000 into an income annuity. That's gone. You now have $700,000. That's a tremendous psychological problem for a lot of people to see that nest egg get smaller. But what it does is it reduces the pressure on the remainder of the portfolio to provide a lifestyle. You don't have to pull as much every year to provide that lifestyle. Um, so you can actually sustain the portfolio for longer if you take a portion of it and you turn it into lifetime income. But I think generally speaking, this, this is something, especially today in a low return and asset return environment, we've got to become more comfortable with the idea of seeing the nest egg get smaller, because if we don't, then we're essentially leaving happiness on the table. I, I recall, you know, one of my clients it was a long time ago now, you know, they lived so modestly and, and they lived in a modest, you know, fairly modest house and modest lifestyle. You know, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't know that they were worth between five and $10 million. 
and, and, you know, there was no sign of it and there was no sign of it in their lifestyle. They were, you know, um, they were getting on, they were getting in, you know, close to their eighties and, you know, the, they loved traveling and that was one thing that they loved doing, but, you know, I, they would tell me about their holidays and it was very economical. You know, they would, they would, they would have a very economical type holiday. They wouldn't stay in hotels. They would rent, you know, sort of, uh, more modest accommodation houses, things like that. And, you know, one, one day when they were telling him about this, I said, why, why are you doing that? Why, why are you living like that? You know, you're not getting any younger. Uh, the husband's health was getting poorer. It was starting to show signs. He was starting to show signs of early onset Alzheimer's. And, um, you know, so I just, out of the blue one day, I just said, I said, you know, it's time you started spending some money because this is ridiculous the way that you're not enjoying your wealth. What did you, what did you do it for? What did you work your your whole lives for, so you could leave it for your children who, who, you know, in, in their case, they couldn't stand, <laughs> right? <laughs> there was, you know, I said, you know, this'll date it, take a trip, you know, go to Europe, take the Concorde, right? Uh, when, <laughs> when, you know, fly first class, don't ever fly economy ever again, fly first, you know, get a, get a chauffeured drive from, from the airport to wherever you're going, get. You know, if you're going on a cruise, take a first class, you know, take the highest class stateroom you can get since you love cruising or, or, or rent the, you know, most luxurious accommodations you're comfortable renting. Um, and, and they did it, you know, they finally, they did it. They, they actually took a trip on, they actually took a trip to Europe on the Concorde and continued, you know, from there to Japan. And that's Europe. when you became a traveler. And, and. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but wait, but wait, this is the, the, you know, like the, the, you know, you know, uh, I, about a year later, uh, I mean, and it's kind of sad, it's sad because I really, you know, I really, uh, you know, I love them. Like you, you, you get really into your client's lives when you're an advisor and, and, uh, you know, about a year later, uh, his, uh, the husband's health, uh, deteriorates significantly. And, uh, the Alzheimer's came full on and it was impossible for them to, to, you know, get away like they used to. Um, but she, you know, at that year, you know, that quarter she came in when, when things were, were not going well. And then I think the year after that, the following year he passed away, but she came and she thanked me, you know, she, she, she couldn't believe, you know, how, how right that was for them to do it once and for all. That's something that they have never done, that they had never done in their 50 years of marriage. Something that, that never occurred to them, you know, let's enjoy our, our own money, our own wealth. And, and so, so I, I, your, your point about, you know, getting used to seeing your nest egg depleted, depleting, not depleted, but, uh, was, it was a great point that, that people sit there and, and, you know, there's this risk that they could become miserly about, you know, their lifestyle versus the numbers they see on their statements. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the way you put, you put it, Michael was uh, really succinct, right? It's this trade-off of, um, you have this constant fear maybe with your investment account, because you've lived through uh, a lot of times the clients you're referring to Pierre are, they, they have lived yeah. through the great depression. They were world war two babies, oh, sure. right? So they, those clients yeah. in particular, once they have a nest egg, they are very fearful uh, from a, from a, a mental perspective of that being something that's hard to come by. And here you can, you can take part of that and know that it's not gone because the market took it away or the, 
let's say the stock market in this case, but it's gone because it's going to create that steady flow of income where you can literally always buy whatever that travel is that you're wanting or whatever that lifestyle increase that you would like to have a regular occurrence of and not worry about the fluctuation of the underlying <laughs> markets themselves. Is that kind of, right? I mean, you've, you've, you've already stated it as well as it could be stated. So, um, I, yeah. Concord. I also wonder what are the implications <laughs> on sort of some of the old, you know, rule of thumb, 4% type, um, uh, you know, commentary we see out there. I, I think that that's, there's something that's gotta be twisting in the wind on that given valuations and starting yields. Well, what are your, what are your thoughts? What, what, what comes from the, 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 the high levels of financial planning with these 4% uh, rule of thumbs and things like that? Michael, you did a good job of not convulsing there when he quoted the, the banking rules. So you're, so, I mean, I, I, Michael and I might disagree on this. Okay. So this is one where there could be, I'm not, I'm actually not sure we'll see how this goes, but people, you know, Michael and I and Wade and a, a ton of other folks have rerun the Bengen analysis, which, which at the time was, was amazing. It still is using more realistic returns, right? You know, like bonds, you can't get five and a half percent for bonds. You run it at one and a half, two percent. Okay. And so you know, the number's a lot lower, right? So the number goes from, you know, 4% to 3%, whatever it is. But I still think that 4% is, a, is an excellent starting point for most people, right? You can even take out 5%, right? Because a problem with that analysis and the rules that we use in general is it assumes that, oh my God, I, I can't, I'm not going to change my withdrawal amount for 30 years, no matter what. It assumes that if I go, if I go, if I go broke, that I'm in, I'm destitute, right? You know, in reality, the portfolio for most retirees is a marginal source of income. It's on top of something else, right? In reality, just because you don't meet a goal exactly doesn't mean that it wasn't a great strategy. So I actually think that 4% is still a great place to start with those caveats. If you think about what it means to retire and fund retirement. Now, what it would have been, you know, if we can use historical long term averages is like 5 or 6%, right? I think that actually even like a nominal initial withdrawal amount is a good place to start because people tend to not increase their spending by, by inflation. So then 5% is realistic. So I think that the key here is, is context. I mean, to the earlier conversation, one thing that I do worry about is that a lot of advisors don't consider additional guaranteed income, aka annuities. And so they, they, you know, they say, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Client, you've got low returns. You're going to live until you're 100. You know, so, you know, to be safe, you shouldn't spend any money. Well, that's not the right perspective. The perspective should be, how do you take that pool of money and maximize income? And it is challenging today, but unless you kind of think about what's wrong with the models we use, you're not going to use, I think, get the right, you know, outcomes from those models. I'd be curious if Michael agrees or disagrees with me. Well, I think a lot of what motivated us at the beginning to start questioning this is because many advisors were saying, why would I ever consider buying guaranteed income, especially at today's rates, when I can get 4% adjusted for inflation every year from a balanced investment portfolio? And we're saying, whoa, you know, that, that's not necessarily true because we know that the fixed income component of the portfolio is far below the historical average. You're only using historical U.S. data. Wade made the point that if you used international data, that that safe withdrawal rate would have been closer to about 3%. And then you're left with this, well, maybe it should be two and three quarters or 3%, to which we say, no, that's not the conclusion that we hoped you would draw. The, the conclusion we'd hope you get is that you would consider what your goals are and then, you know, building guaranteed income with the bond portion of your investment portfolio, creating a base of income that gives you a bigger safety net so that if you do run out of your savings, 
then it's okay if you're 85 years old and you're living on, you know, $50,000 a year or something. That's, that's not the end of the world. And in fact, what ends up happening is that people very often spend the most between 65 and 75. And that's when you should spend the most because that's when you're most physically capable of getting the greatest amount of enjoyment from your money. And you're most cognitively capable of getting the most enjoyment out of your money. So I don't want to tell anybody not to spend their money between 65 and 75. I want to tell them to be realistic about the risks that you face and the goals that you have and building a combination of an investment and product strategy that's going to do a better job of helping your clients be happy in retirement. So that whole idea of only focusing on the investment portfolio and only focusing on the amount that you can withdraw from the investment portfolio adjusted for inflation over a certain number of years, that's probably not the frame of reference that I want to encourage advisors to use. I want to encourage them to be a little bit more flexible about what their alternatives are. Is there a problem with, with I mean, do you find there's a problem with advisors um, maybe not accepting the capital market assumptions going forward? When they, when, you know, when they're doing their planning, when they're doing their investment planning. So what, one concern that I have is, is how you incorporate capital market assumptions, right? So, um, I have a, I have a pretty, pretty high level of certainty. If you buy a, a 10 year government bond today, the yield is one and a half percent. I feel really good about that. Right. That's, that's, we, we know that. I don't know when yeah. they're going to be 10 years from now. I don't know they're going to be 20 years from now. Right. And so I think that, that it is important to be aware of today's return environment. But it's important to also <laughs> incorporate it correctly into a financial plan. Now, maybe you think that this is the new normal, and that's totally possible. But, you know, most people that create different, you know, sets of CMAs have like a near-term low value and then some kind of like higher eventual, more unconditional value. And so I think that when advisors should kind of think about return assumptions, it should be multi-period. And what I worry is that, you know, you're going to use, you know, if, again, if you think that they're lower turnover, that's fine. But, but that, I think the context there is important. And I don't know that a lot of a tool, a lot of tools allow for that, but I'm a big believer in assuming that like returns are low for the next, you can pick a number, five, seven, 10, 12 years, then they're going to be higher mm -hmm. at some point in the future. And why that's just so important is, you know, if I'm, if I'm at retirement, then the low returns right now are really, really important. Okay. If I'm 25 years old, it just doesn't matter because returns when I'm, you know, 40 years from now are really important. So I think that, that like the CMAs are super important, but the, the context is too, because, you know, these plans can last for 70 plus years. And all we really know about is where yields are right now. Well, One of the so things that really scares me is uh, all the people that are retiring right now, you know, we are on the tail end of one of the longest bull runs in the asset market in history. <clears throat> and what you see is this sort of avalanche of people in their early 60s saying, I met my nominal dollar threshold. I'm going to be okay. Uh, that scares me a lot. And I know you and Adam, you mm -hmm. and I sort of agree about the direction of asset returns in the future. And one of the things that, that scares me about assuming historical asset returns is that it can actually induce people to retire earlier than it's safe, earlier than they can generate the lifestyle they want to live. Uh, it, there's something else too, that the, the idea of, um, delaying retirement as being a very powerful lever to accomplishing retirement goals too. I, as part of that, so you, you've got this almost perfect setup for Mr. Market to have a whole bunch of baby boomers, this massive population. We reach peak 60, 40, yields are low, dis discounted cash flow assets, prices are high. A whole generation now feels like they can retire, put their feet up and relax. 
only to have the rug pulled out from under them over the next decade, potentially. Um, so there's, there's that, that one should think about for sure. Uh, but in the case where one experiences something like that, they're, they're looking at retirement and they either have a drawdown they didn't expect. Can you guys elaborate on, on how delaying retirement uh, or, or taking it a year earlier really has this potentially large impact on, on the potential outcome over, over time or does it? So, I mean, it does. Delaying retirement is like the single best thing that you can do to improve your outcome. You know, for the U.S., you get an additional year to save. You got additional year delayed credit for Social Security. Your assets can grow a year. You got one less year to plan for. It's amazing. Okay. My con my concern with delayed retirement is that it's often used as this plug in a financial plan. Oh, you're not on track to retire at 62. Just, just, just work to your 70. Well, it isn't reality. There's, a, there's still a huge gap in in an actual, there's about a four-year gap on average between expectations and reality. And so I think too often planners use the labor time as this plug, oh, you'll keep working longer. Well, that doesn't actually happen, right? So yes, I totally agree that delayed retirement is good. And I think to Michael's point earlier, like a point I'd make right now is that if you exit the workforce, you know, now, now is a little bit different than normal. Like the, your ability to re-enter the workforce and get a good job isn't very good. So, you know, if you can just, you know, maybe you hit that goal, but hang on for a few more years until you're absolutely done. That way, if, if something bad does happen, you're in better shape because once you're out, it's hard to get back in. If you're in and bad things happen, you're still in the workforce. So I just, I mean, the one caution I always give is like, when you pull that trigger, that's a pretty big decision. And again, you know, I, I think given where unemployment is, it might be easier to return now than it was before, but still your job prospects when you're, when you're 65 are better than when you're 75, but they're still not great. One of the, um, I think points of confusion for many advisors and retirees, um, they, they believe that, for example, the great depression was the period of time where it would have been hardest to retire, right? If you sort of retired into 1927, 1928, 1929 and endured the great depression, um, and we're withdrawing funds over that period that that would have been, um, the most, the most challenging time. And in fact, when you go back through history, um, perhaps the most challenging time is actually from, if you sort of were to retire at about 1966, and then you were to endure both the low return environment of the late 60s and 1970s, combined with this um, major uptick in unexpected inflation, right? So you've got low returns and a faster than expected erosion in your purchasing power. We haven't seen inflation like that in a very long time. And there's very few people that are able to draw on personal experience to inform expectations there. Are you guys worried about that? I mean, just looking at some of this, the potential sides of inflation here, but I mean, not, notwithstanding any sort of macro call here, do you think that investors are prepared for a higher than expected inflation rate here? And if not, how can they close the gap, do you think? Adam, I mean, you're basically <laughs> describing today. So, I mean, it, it looks like we're gonna have a low return environment. Uh, inflation's going up, um, you know, if you're on a fixed income, if you have finite amounts of assets, it means that you deplete faster. It means your actual lifestyle is worse. It's a risk that I don't think we know how to deal with right now. I mean, we, 
our social security is inflation adjusted, which means that part of your base income is going to go up if inflation rises. That's a good hedge against inflation. Everything else, it's hard, you know, other than assets that are specifically tied to the inflation in the price index that most closely relates to what you spend money on in retirement. Uh, unless you can buy assets like that, then it becomes kind of a crapshoot in terms of what assets are really going to correlate most strongly with inflation. And you're right, you know, as soon as you were making that point about what the worst time to retire was, I was thinking, oh, 1966, like that is the time that <laughs> most resembles today and was really the worst time because your life's, the cost of funding your lifestyle is rocketing up at the same time your investment portfolio is stagnating or falling. Uh, you know, and the worst case scenario would be a situation where there is a drop in asset prices at the same time that consumer prices are going up. Uh, and that's a risk that I don't, you know, it, it nobody who is in retirement not right now has ever had to face something quite like that in the past. And a lot of financial advisors, especially, have a difficult time conceptualizing what that would look like. Um, and I know a lot of economists have been saying for a long time, the focus on inflation. It's a risk. I know it hasn't reared its head in a long time, but it's a risk. It's happened historically. It's real. You got to think about it. Um, but the problem is that assets that hedge inflation are so expensive right now. To buy a treasury investment, or a bond investment that is inflation adjusted, locks you in to a 100% certain loss in purchasing power. You know, for example, a one thousand for every one thousand dollars invested, you will have say nine hundred and thirty-five dollars of purchasing power in five years. That's the safe route: is that your purchasing power uh, is going to decline certainly over the course of five or ten years. Um, so it's an insurance policy, but you know you're going to live worse. And your alternative is to say, "I'm not going to hedge that risk," uh, but that means that it could get even worse than that. It's depressing. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's, there's just <laughs> it's well, what, always, what always strikes me is, is that <laughs> it's not as though there are no asset classes or investment options that are designed to hedge certain types of inflation, right? It's just that they are hard to price. They're unconventional. They manifest in large tracking error to core benchmarks. Um, I mean, uh, the elephant in the room to my mind is, is commodities and gold. I mean, there's also, if you're an institution, you can buy inflation swaps, that sort of stuff. But, you know, I, I understand psychologically why investors don't hold a lot of commodities and gold in the portfolio because they've been a major drag on performance over the last decade. But for planners, like for people in, in, in your serving your role, how come you guys haven't given more thought to, you know, what it looks like to add explicit inflation hedges in the portfolio, what that might look like and, and how people should approach it? So, I mean, I've, I've actually looked at that exact topic, right? So like the, I mean, your point is spot, I mean, so from my perspective, like the marginal efficiency of commodities type asset classes is low for someone who is younger, because you have implicit inflation hedges within your human capital, or other means. The value of those of that exposure of of commodities of tips of real estate increase significantly for individuals who are in retirement, and so 
an efficient retirement portfolio for the same, you could say, generalized risk level, however you want to define it, should look very different, or at least a little bit different than the, the efficient accumulation portfolio, because the underlying assets of the household have changed, as has the nature of the liability. So I'm a big believer in having, you know, di different or again, very different exposures for a retirement focused portfolio and one that is geared towards accumulation. And then, and then how do you model that? Well, there are different ways you can do it. My preferred method is a um, resampled portfolio optimization using the utility function to determine the surplus variance in the outcome. Okay, but then you, in the context of these inflation hedges, right, you've got to then you have use to have some sort of assumptions. Right? So yeah. I have, luckily, people that are that I work with that are smarter than me, you know, have have you know have done lots of work on different asset classes. You know, I mean, you you have to resample it right because n n no one knows what's going to happen. Um, you could even do a generalized one over n. I'm not opposed to that. I think the the key is just having some of it in a portfolio. I mean. You know, those of us that spend time on this, we, we, we debate is, should it be 20% or 24% when I think the bigger question is just having it and not worrying so much about what is that weight? Yeah. No, not zero. It's not zero. That's yeah. right. Well, I mean, the thing is, well, it can be zero. I mean, like, again, I think, I think it's, 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 it's moving away from like just pure mean variance optimization to like say, Hey, like this portfolio exists and it's not an Island. There's other stuff that exists out there. And it exists to fund a goal. And so when you, when you reframe a portfolio in this more holistic setting, it can radically change the definition of what is a truly efficient portfolio for a household or any investor for an endowment, mm -hmm. you know, endowments have donation risk. I mean, the most, or a charity, the, the, the largest asset for most charities is the, is the net present value of future donation. And so like, there's all these other things that matter when it comes to building portfolios that I think that the vast majority of folks don't think about. They just like the, like a nice handy little mean variance optimization, they call it a day. So what would the, the sort of top three takeaways be for an advisor who wants to get closer to the um, current understanding of kind of best practices for retirement planning, right? Where, where are the two points that are probably the biggest delta between how people typically approach the problem and um, an optimal way to approach the problem, um, given all of the things that we've learned over the last few decades about this uh, challenge. Well, I think I'll just step in and say step one is that this, you know, a lot of advisors focus on the accounts. They, they practice account-based advising as opposed to goal-based advising. So sitting down with a client, asking them what they want to achieve with their money, how much do they want to pass on? How much do they want to spend? How much spending flexibility are they willing to accept? And then build a strategy around their goals rather than just looking at their investment portfolio and doing a risk tolerance test and estimating an optimal percentage of stocks and bonds, you know, fiddling with some tax efficiency. That's not it. Like what's it is sitting down and asking your client what they hope to achieve in retirement and then building the strategy around the goals rather than around the account. Great. Yep. That's one. I mean, that, that tends to be because <clears throat> that account may be the extent of all the assets they have from that particular client, right? What? Are you saying that advisors base their <laughs> advice sometimes on... <laughs> What they're managing? I don't, I don't think fiduciary that's fiduciary advisors. Yeah. What? Mm. 
these. Well, I would say as a follow up, I mean, Michael, will, I think, agree <laughs> this one spot on is is education for advisors. I think is absolutely essential. I think that you know when you move towards this context of goals based investing, you have to understand how all these different things work. And I am so tired of these excuses advisors give about oh annuities are expensive. Da, 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 da. It is your job to know this stuff. Right. It is your job. You have specific human capital in helping clients accomplish their financial goals. You should be an expert on all the different vehicles, tools, strategies, solutions, options, whatever you want to call it out there that they can use. Now, they're not gonna some might not work for all clients, but but some but but, they, but uh, you know, some will work for a lot. And I think that that's what advisors need to be doing. And you know, if I'm a if I'm a re retiree listening or a near retiree, and my, the only thing that my advisor talks about is 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 a is a stock and bond portfolio, that's not necessarily the the right advisor, in my opinion, for someone. I want someone who's thinking about all the options holistically because they're educated on them, and then and then coming up with a plan based upon that. So, what are some good tools that advisors can turn to to um, put some of this? some of these best practices to work. You know, many uh, independent RIAs, obviously they're, you know, they don't have firm-based software or tools. Um, so they're gonna be looking to outsource some of this to, to technology, et cetera. I mean, obviously there's a garbage in, garbage out um, problem, right? A lot of software suites probably are not targeting, maximizing marginal propensity to spend or, you know, the marginal utility of excess spending or relative to the variance of the corpus, like what, what are some of the, the most usable or approachable, uh, tech stacks in this space relative to their actual efficacy and, and actually approximating best practices in your opinion? I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm rusty on the tools that exist. I mean. But I mean, I think what, to, to one of your points is I'm, I'm increasingly concerned about the metric that almost every tool use, which is success rates, right? So we've, we've moved to a world where advisors are running Monte Carlo simulations and Monte Carlo is just a sample word, is just a fun word to say that there's some randomness tossed in there. Okay. Well, one, the only random variable is returns and there's a lot more random stuff that can happen in retirement than returns. Like when you actually retire, when you die lots of other stuff. Okay. On top of that, right. If success rate is the outcome, so it's, it's binary yes or no for each individual run that can give very bad answers for decisions around things like guaranteed income based upon all the other assumptions. And so, you know, I, I, I believe in financial planning tools, but a lot of them, you know, assume a, a static strategy where you go, where you make a bunch of decisions when you retire, you don't revisit it. And, and I think planning this is always a good thing. I'm just, I'm just increasingly jaded on the, the way that most tools that exist do it, at least today. When I started out as an advisor, you know, my, my mentors, um, really were very negative on things like whole life insurance and insurance products in general, other than term life, of course. You know, the, the, the trick in, in, in that time was to, you know, if a client had a whole life policy was to convert them to term and take the, take the, uh, policy value and invest it in, you know, in the market in funds or, you know, what in, in a portfolio, but, you know, so, so very early on, I mean, there was a, there was a very strong bias. I think I, and I, I'm not saying it was just with me. I think it was across the industry 
in terms of, of the independent advisors, not the insurance people, but independent advisors versus the insurance advisors. And, you know, insurance advisors tended to recommend things like whole life because, you know, that was their equivalent of, 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 you know, a portfolio and, and, uh, and I'm talking in, in the, you know, late eighties, nineties now, but, um, so I always had a bias. I always had a personal bias against these ideas. I was personally, I, first of all, before I go on, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I think it is an advisor's responsibility to know what all these options are, including annuities and how they work and whether or not they should be part of a client's, uh, financial picture. But you know, you have to overcome that bias. There was a really strong as I mean, in Canada, I don't know if that applies in the U S as much. But there was a really strong bias against recommending, you know, insurance-based investment products or, or annuities or those types of instruments when, when you could actually capture those assets for your own business. And, uh, you know, there was, there was a sales motivation, obviously, as well in there. It wasn't strictly that, you know, we were all functioning like fiduciaries, in, you know, in those times. But, but, you know, when the business is very transactional, you tend to, you know, a, a, on the advisory side, you tend to... It, it, you know, if you've been in the business, if you've been in and around the business for as long as some of us have, you, you remember those times and, and you remember the bias. And I, I think maybe that's part of the problem is, is that, you know, when, when you go to talk to annuities, when you go to speak about annuities to your clients, you have to be on board first and, 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 uh, you know, so you have to overcome that bias. What? Of, I, think, of, I think that's the, that's the point that David and Michael are making is that it, it's not your goals. Yeah. It's not your sales goals that we're talking about when we're talking about goals-based planning. Right. That's are you not, sure? Are you, I, I, not, I, I, those aren't the goals yeah. that we're trying to reach. Just so we're yeah, all no. clear. And in, I mean, you know, David, you've mentioned a couple of times annuities being expensive in Canada. They're one of the cheapest things you can buy. They rival, well, they are, are less expensive than term insurance, like the, the, the commission built into an annuity is almost nothing in Canada. You really get like full flow through of the dollar, um, that people would invest in an annuity. And yet, you know, we don't have a lot of adoption. And, and like you said, you know, if you're managing a million dollars and you're managing that at a 1% MER, you've just given up 30% of your revenue. If you're going to take 300 K and you got the sum total of, you know, a half of a year's revenue that's gone forever. And so it's unlikely that, uh, you know, it's, this is a hard thing to say, but it's, it's unlikely that, you know, from on high, from sales management on down, that that's going to be a highly recommended, um, you know, uh, item in, in the, in the docket, unless you're, you know, maybe a fee-based planner. Um, from, from that perspective and there's yeah. a bunch of challenges with the, just the fee base side, but anyway, the, the Coles based stuff is, uh, <laughs> is great. The tools, I guess we'll have to find some tools for everybody to. Well, as a, as a guy who's built, yeah. you know, five or six retirement simulators over the years and, and, and attempted to, you know, do the, the joint probability distribution of the longevity risk and, uh, and the market risk and. Then realizing that really nobody cares. You know, one of my favorite stories is, uh, is having a really thoughtful <laughs> planner at one of the firms we used to work at. And he, he had some of the most advanced tech operating under best practices. He used a, a joint stochastic model 
um, realistic capital market assumptions, et cetera, and, you know, develop these really thoughtful reports and the advisors universally despising them because they produced uh, expected cash flows that were far below the expected cash flows that were being uh, touted by their their peers. They're competing for business. They're being responsible and prudent. The income that they're suggesting the retiree can pull is considerably lower because they're using stochastic models than the other advisors here who are using linear expectations. And the advisors universally just wanted the, you know, 45 pages of um, pro forma expected cash flows out for 400 years um, using linear assumptions. And I mean, it's just, I, 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 in your experience, is this, are these competing priorities still existent today or are, is, is the investment industry becoming a little bit more enlightened in its maturity? Still a problem. <laughs> you know, I'm sure point, struggled with for so long. Like, but I'm to your point. What I mean, like, what what is the incentive for the advisor? I mean, Michael and I are like phenomenally depressing. You get us on like a tag team presentation about like capital market assumptions. <laughs> we're gonna make you cry. Okay, like, 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 what is the like, what is the vested interest? No one makes an advisor use whatever assumptions they want to use, right? How many advisors do you think that get CMAs take their fees out of those CMAs? Right. Well, no, they, I, mean, I mean, they have like, the I mean, alpha. I, I, no, no, no. The alpha would come from the investments, right? I'm, I'm not talking about the investment expenses, right? Yeah. So, like, technically, right, you know, like the ETF, we'll assume that, you know, like, I'm just saying the advisor's yeah. costs aren't the alpha component. You know, they can add it back in. What they should say is, hey, I charge 1%. That's going to come out of these returns directly. Yeah. I'm going to add, but no, they don't. No one does. You know, these are things that advisors aren't doing because. What's the benefit to doing so? Like, you know, you can use our incredibly <laughs> depressing return assumptions and then your clients cry and they go to a different advisor who can say, hey, you're going to be fine. Right. Yep. And I don't yep. know how you educate past that to, to most people that aren't like robots, like economists. Well, yeah, I, I think that's the problem, right? Is, is, you know, I, I love that there was this, there was this great piece from Alan Greenspan when he was a disciple of Ayn Rand and it was the, uh, it, it was, it was his paper on regulation that, you know, there was no incentive for somebody, for example, and I had this conversation, I remember once with an electrician who was bitching to me about, you know, the, the shitty standards in the electrical industry, right? There was no incentive to do great work because you weren't going to get paid more than the next guy to do amazing electrical work, right? So you could be the best electrician with the highest standard, the highest operating standard. And yeah, that would go to your reputation ultimately, but in the short run, there was no incentive to, you know, if somebody came along and did the same work, the same, the same kind of work, but lower quality. There was no incentive to be better than, than the average. And, and, and I think, I think that's the problem that we see here that we're talking about is that, you know, advisors get these, you know, very high tech construction, you know, portfolio construction models and capital market assumptions. And then the moment somebody comes along to threaten that whole thing, like, like, you know, David, like the guy you said, oh, 
everything's going to be okay. You know, there's no need to worry. Uh, you know, that advisor gets the business, but the advisor who spent, you know, hours preparing for a meeting, hours preparing, you know, capital market assumptions and putting a portfolio, a model portfolio together for a particular client is, is faced with, you know, what does this mean? What is that? I don't understand, you know, just get me to just get me there. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, like that's, I think that's part of the problem. So I'm not saying that people are going to, you know, I'm not suggesting people are going to stop doing great work, but if, but if, you know, it, it's like, I remember going, uh, for example, going to Venice, you know, supposedly there's great restaurants there. Right. But when you walk around Venice, all there is is pizza and pasta, <laughs> right? And, 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 and tourists, that the reason there isn't, you know, tons of fine Italian restaurants in Venice is because tourists want pizza and pasta, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what's, the, uh, what's the incentive? I mean, there are some great restaurants in Venice, but what's the incentive, you know, to compete against every mom and pop pizza and pasta shop in Venice when... when that's who's making money and, and, you know, the restaurants are sitting empty half the time. And so I, I think, you know, that's, that's the dilemma that we're talking about here, right? Is that there are lots of amazing options, lots of better options for retirees, for investors along the lines of some of the stuff we've been talking about today that are superior to, you know, the, the, the portfolio. But then when you, when you match that up with what's, what's in it for the advisor and what's in it for the client. There's a mismatch there clearly. Well, this is a problem with any expert service industry that you know more than the client does. And so the client doesn't have the skill to evaluate the advice that you're giving. They just have to sort of trust Absolutely. you and they go on feeling, uh, and sometimes the feeling is accurate and sometimes the feeling is not. And so giving people negative information can create a negative feeling. So they don't want to see you. And I guess the trick is for someone who is trying to be a realistic advisor, how do you, how do you allow people to have a positive feeling about the experience of working with you while still being realistic? So, and, I, and to that and I really do think that following a more goals-based approach, because when you focus only on the portfolio, then you judge your advisor based on what happens in the portfolio. It, you become a portfolio-centric advisor. If you're a goal-based advisor, <laughs> then the advisor can ask you questions about your life. They can show that they understand what you want to achieve. They can, they can get to know you deeply in a personal way that you can't, if, if you're only a portfolio based advisor. So my answer is like, if you are an investments only advisor and you're only focusing on the portfolio and you're giving bad news, you're creating a negative feeling and the client's going to walk away trying to find another advisor that's going to make them feel better. But if you follow a goal-based approach that incorporates being realistic, but gives your client a positive feeling because they feel like you understand them. That's an alternative to the only value proposition being the investment performance. But Michael, aren't, aren't all advisors goal based advisors and, and active listeners and, and, uh, you know, hand holders and, you know, nurturers of their clients, aren't they all? The good ones are, you know, and I, I think that, <laughs> that we're joking about it. And a lot of people are just incredibly bad about yeah. it. But 
Um, I'm just, I, I'm surprised, you know, I, I, I've always gone on the assumption that that was just good practice, you know, that that was just a good baseline practice, which was actually to ask your clients what they want and, and then find a way to solve that problem. And, and by and, the way, sometimes some of them just want a, uh, an investment based advisor. Yeah. So, so this is not to, to, yep. you know, I, I think, right. yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, the other side, wanna, right? That's the other side of the coin. Is, advisors, you, I don't wanna, if you have a particular practice, as long as yeah. you're real about it and someone comes to you for financial planning advice, you say, well, that's not my gig. Uh, yeah. You know, that no one, yeah. no one can, hold, you know. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely, Mike. I, I totally agree with that. There's obviously, there's, there's people who want to just invest their money and they don't want to get into a whole diatribe about their life and their goals. Yep. So that's the other yep. side, right? Not everybody wants to uh, lay it all out on the table with, uh, with a I, new stranger. I Again, I, I think that comes back to good uh, initial listening though. I mean, if you're, if you're that type of advisor mm -hmm. looking for that type of client and you guys meet and you have a meeting of the minds, then way you go. It's a free market. Knock yourselves out. Anyway, we've got, we've had you guys for over an hour. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to make, uh, make us aware of or anything that we missed along the way? Adam, did you have any, any other, uh, questions or comments that you wanted to, I don't, I just want to make sure that people know where to find, yep. um, more from David and yep. Michael, um, where can they find you? Where can they find your work? What are you working on right now yeah. and, and excited about that people should, should keep their eyes peeled for? Well, David, you, you have your own website, correct? <laughs> where you have all of your publications. I do. So, uh, if you want to learn more about me, I would recommend, um, my I have a website is not very good, but it's informative. Uh, David and Blanchett.com. Um, I'm also somewhat active on LinkedIn as long as my compliance, my compliance allows me to do so. <laughs> and we both write for advisor right. perspectives, which is uh, a newsletter for advisors. It's online. And you can also find our research on social science research network, which is SSRN.com. Just search for our names and you'll see our publications. Awesome. We'll, we'll be sure to put those links and anything juicy that we find in the show notes. I love it. Thanks so much, guys. This has been exceptional as I knew it would be. Yeah. And, um, absolutely. Thanks for all the amazing contributions and would look forward to next time. Cool. Yeah. One last question. Would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future? Whoa. Do what? I get to come back to the present if I spend it in the future? Well, you're just going for a week, right? But I get to come back, right? Correct. Yeah, it's like a holiday, but you get to go to either the past or the future. Do we get to choose which week which in the one? past or is it random? Is it stochastic weeks? <laughs> <laughs> or stochastic weeks in the future. <laughs> And can we, and is this, can we do it with this option now? Like, can I hold on to this and use it later? Cause at this point I would pick the future, but I can assure you when like, I'm sure at some point I'd pick the past based upon things that have happened. There you go. In other words, don't yeah, ask us that I, question. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's any week in any future or any, no, your, your future, or your past. Well, we, you know, we could do non-disclosure agreements if you want. <laughs> I do think we tend to be more optimistic about the future. So most people would probably choose the future than the past. I love it. I will. I know that I would eventually choose the past at some point later in my life. 
I'm sure there's a week that I will look back on and want to relive that with anything else. Yeah, I'm, I'm not there yet. You are too. So my future you are, is you're really old. Fun. So I would say at this point, the future, but I'm the older I get, mm. the certainty will increase dramatically that it would be the past. I love that. So it wouldn't be back. That's a good it answer. It wouldn't be back to the future. It would be forward to the forward past. Forward to the past. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. All right. Yeah. Thank you awesome. very much, guys. Thank you, gentlemen. Great. That was Our awesome. Pleasure.